this is the part of the evening where we get to hear from God's word, which is a hugely important part of, of what Christians do when they gather, because um, there's no way to actually know who God really is without understanding who he is according to what he says. Um, and in fact, what we're going to look at tonight is, is a place where Jesus explains in his own words who he is so that we don't have to invent God out of our own heads. We can actually go straight to the source and see what God says about God. And that's why it's so important to be grounded in God's word. If you are here tonight and you're realizing, man, I wish I knew God's word better. Um, and you want to like go deeper in that, like I would do a Bible study with anyone in this room who is really hungry for that. There are other people here, other leaders who would do that. Um, there are few things in life that are more important than being grounded in the truths of God's word. So that's the part we're going to uh, we're going to do right now. So uh, grab a Bible. We're going to be in the Gospel of John tonight. Turn to John chapter six. <laughs> what does that mean? Does that mean like excitement or disappointment? Okay, Toba's happy. Okay, well, Toba's happy, and we're all happy. Okay, um, and actually, could you, well, let's just stand tonight and just in honor of, of the reading of God's Word. So we're going to look at John chapter 6, uh, and then I'm going to start in verse 25 and read down to verse 35. So verse 25. When they found him on the other side of the lake, they asked him, Rabbi, when did you get here? Jesus answered, I tell you the truth. You were looking for me, not because you saw miraculous signs, but because you ate the loaves and had your fill. Do not work for food that spoils, but for food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. On him, God the Father has placed his seal of approval. Then they asked him, What must we do to do the works God requires? Jesus answered, The work of God is this, to believe in the one he has sent. So they asked him, What miraculous sign then will you give that we may see it believe you. What will you do? Our forefathers ate the manna in the desert. As it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. Jesus said to them, I tell you the truth. It is not Moses who has given you the bread from heaven, but it is my Father who gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. Sir, they said, from now on, give us this bread. Then Jesus declared, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will never go hungry, and he who believes in me will never be thirsty. You guys can take a seat. So tonight, uh, Thrive is going to launch into a new series called Real Jesus. And there really is only one real Jesus. It's not as though like we've got a couple of Jesuses on off and we're just going to be talking about the real one. There's only one real Jesus, but the thing is, um, there are all kinds of different ways that people understand Jesus. And we're living in a time right now where there's a lot of chaos and fear. And I think a lot of people, both people of faith and not, are, are freaking out because of the way that they see things going in the country. The funny thing is, is that people on one side think that they're, they're freaking out because the country's going one way. People on the other side are freaking out because it's you know, the exact opposite reason. <laughs> but but the, the, the point is, what do you do? in a time of anxiety, whether that's like national anxiety or maybe that's just even like personal anxiety in your own life, there are two options. And one option is you can come to Jesus or the other option is you can come to something else. Uh, you can come to Jesus or you can come to something else in order to have the fear and the anxiety in our hearts relieved. 
And the, the, the thing is, I think a lot of us would probably say, like, I want to come to Jesus. Like, I know that he's what I need. But the problem is, a lot of times we just forget who Jesus really is. And so what we're going to do for the next couple of weeks is we're going to look at the I am statements in the Gospel of John. Um, you know, people in Jesus' day had the exact same problem that we have today. They had all these different opinions about who Jesus was. You know, some said, I think you're the prophet. I think you're Elijah. I think you're Jeremiah. And people in our day have all kinds of opinions about who Jesus is. Uh, but in John's gospel, there are seven different moments where Jesus tells us exactly who he really is. And he says, I am the bread of life. I am the light of the world. I am the way, the truth, and the life. And and so we're going to look at each one of those, starting with this one. Um, You probably heard it. Jesus says, verse 35, I am the bread of life. I am the bread of life. Now, uh, what does that mean? That's our question this evening. Um, This obviously does not mean, surprise, surprise, it does not mean that Jesus is a big hunk of wheat. (laughs) Surprise. Um, but, But, of course, you know, he's using a metaphor. Um, and it's a metaphor that has to do with, drumroll, please. And you guys are good tonight. Satisfaction. Satisfaction. So think about this. Like in the same way that, uh, you know, like you, uh, you, you satisfy your stomach by eating physical food. Jesus in this chapter, what we're going to see tonight, he's pointing to the fact that there's a satisfaction not just for your stomach, but for your soul. And that he is the source of that satisfaction. And so for the next 20 minutes or so, we're, we're going to look at this passage in a little bit more detail. And we're going to, it's going to tell us three things about what it means for Jesus to be the bread of life. So here they are. The first thing that we're going to learn is that you are made for everlasting joy. You are made for everlasting joy. Number one. Number two, you're made for everlasting joy. But what we do is we tend to settle for superficial substitutes. So we settle for superficial substitutes, number two. And then number three, this, is, this passage is going to tell us, how do you actually find deep joy in Jesus? How do you do that? So if you're taking notes, number one, you're made for everlasting joy. Number two, we settle for superficial substitutes. And then number three, how to find deep joy in Jesus. So, uh, here's the context of this passage. The context of the passage, if you go back at the beginning of chapter 6, this is where Jesus performs the the, the miracle of the 5,000, where he feeds feeds the 5,000. It's the only miracle that is in all four Gospels. The only miracle that's in all four Gospels, uh, other than the resurrection, of course. (laughs) But but you think that if you're Jesus and you've just fed 5,000 people, the very first thing you're going to want to do is you're going to want to bask in the awe and in the the glory of all these people who now think you're the, the best thing since sliced bread, pun intended. But Jesus, thanks Parker, uh, Jesus steps out of the spotlight and he actually retreats from fame and glory. Uh, which just by the way, I, I just think this is so cool because we live in a world that worships celebrity. And sometimes we actually worship like celebrity pastors. And then when those celebrity pastors fall and they show themselves to not be who they say that they are in private as opposed to in public, then it just brings all of the shame to the name of Christ. Um, Jesus didn't do that. Jesus, not only, Jesus is the only person who's ever lived who is exactly who he says he is. No hypocrisy, no superficiality, no, no, no scandal. But he also, he, he, he's not obsessed with the spotlight. He retreats. 
And then the people go looking for him. And, and they find him on the other side of the lake. And this is where what we read comes in. So in verse 26, Jesus finds all these people who are looking for him. And he says, I tell you the truth. You are looking for me not because you saw miraculous signs, but because you ate the loaves and had your fill. So in other words, he's saying, hey, look, the reason you're looking for me is because I gave you food. But then he begins to go on and say, well, look, I gave you physical food, but I want to tell you about a different kind of food. So he says, do not work for food that spoils, but for food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. So what is food that endures to eternal life? What's he talking about? Uh, now, of course, you remember, like Jesus is not, not talking about food for your body. Instead, he's talking about a kind of food for your soul. And so when he says that there's a food that endures to eternal life, what, what he's referring to is he's saying that there is a kind of food that satisfies your soul and it endures to eternal life. Uh, so this raises a question, and the question is, like, what would that actually look like? Like, if this really existed, what would it look like for your soul to be satisfied? What would it look like for your soul to be satisfied? Um, I just, out of curiosity, any, someone, someone take a stab at answering that question, if you're feeling bold and up to it. What would it look like for kind of the human heart, the human soul to be satisfied? Anything come to mind? Content with life. Okay, oneness. Yeah. And Will, are you talking about oneness with God? Are you talking about oneness with one another? Probably both. Both, okay. Depends on the situation. <laughs> I see. Uh, any, anyone else? Counting your blessings. Counting your blessings, okay. Okay, so probably maybe gratitude would be included in that? Yeah, yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, you know, when I think about this question, um, it takes me back to high school. <laughs> Scary. We don't want to talk about high schoolers. We're, we're, we're young adults here. But, uh, yeah, you know, when I was in high school, um, I, I distinctly remember um, that there was this, this kind of time as, as in my high school years when I just I, – I remember reflecting on the fact that on paper, I had, like, just the most amazing life. Like, I came from uh, this, you know, great family, like, you know, great parents – um, you know, had a stable home life. I, I was doing well in school. Um, you know, there were people that I think, I don't want to put words in their mouth. I think they, you know, respected me. I think that they even admired me for certain things. Um, and so there were plenty of things that like on paper made me happy. Uh, but at the same time, I just remember realizing like, okay, all these things on paper are, are true. And I, there are some things that make me happy in life. But I also remember feeling just totally unsatisfied. And one day, I remember I was, I was looking through the Bible, and I came across a verse that just perfectly captured what I was feeling. Um, and it was the verse Ecclesiastes 1, verse 7. So this is where Solomon, uh, the wise old king of Israel, is kind of reflecting on life. And he says in verse 7, All streams flow into the sea, yet the sea is never full. And I thought to myself, you know, I feel like that sea. Um, it's not like the sea was empty. Like, you know, there was some stuff in there. Like, there was some stuff that kind of, like, gave me a little bit of a buzz or made me happy. But um, there would just be these times where I would just feel this yawning, yearning, just inconsolably deep ache. Um, that it just didn't seem like anything else um, really was able to kind of hit the spot of, you know. Didn't really seem to be able to do anything about it. And so I think what Jesus is getting at in John 6 is the same thing that Solomon is getting at in Ecclesiastes. Uh, and... and one way that you could frame that is to say that there's actually a difference between happiness and joy. 
Um, you know, happiness isn't usually nearly as hard to manage because all you have to do is you just got to find something that gives you a buzz. You know, so that could just be like friends for all the extroverts here in the room. Uh, you know, introverts, I'm sure you guys have friends too, you know. Uh, but friends, family, <laughs> I, I'm kind of an introvert, so I'm making fun of myself. Uh, friends, family, uh, you know, food, uh, maybe that's where you get your buzz from. Or, you know, uh, I don't know, could be like things like parties, alcohol, sex, like whatever it might be. Those things might make you happy, but joy is deeper than that because it lasts after the buzz has worn off. Happiness doesn't last that long. Joy does. And so the Bible says that's actually what we're made for. And, and uh, look, at, look at, again, at these couple of verses and notice the way that Jesus characterizes what joy really looks like. So first, note that he says here that the food he's talking about, uh, he, he uses the word endures. You know, work for food that endures to eternal life. Okay, what do we call something that's enduring? Uh, if something is enduring, what that means is that it's permanent. Uh, and if something is permanent, what that means is that nothing can take it away. So, so Jesus is saying that, like, I'm offering you a kind of food that, that is unconditional. Like, it's not influenced by uh, conditions or by circumstances. And, uh, you know, for example, um, you know, I'm trying to think of a good example here. Uh, well, actually, okay, you know what? This, this really kind of connects to the next thing here. Um, so let me, just, let me just mention this. So if you think about it, if something is, if there's a kind of joy that's available that is unconditional, like it's not based on your circumstances, that you don't need to kind of continually have that buzz to have it, then what that actually means is that it's also a kind of joy that's counter-conditional. As in, like, that kind of joy can exist even when all of your circumstances say that it shouldn't. Um, the other day, I, I think this was on Instagram. Don't tell people that I'm... I sometimes am guilty of being on Instagram. Don't tell Jake that I'm sometimes on Instagram. <laughs> you guys know Jake, then uh, he's, he's, he's not a fan. Anyway, uh, the other day I, I found this quote. It said, some of the most meaningful worship will be the worship you offer in suffering. Some of the most meaningful worship will be the worship you offer in suffering. And, and this is, I think, the same thing that Jesus is getting at here. Uh, so... What the Bible is saying is that some of the most profound experiences of joy that you might have might actually be in the darkest and fieriest seasons of your life. Um, you know, probably the, the best example I know um, is the story behind the hymn, It Is Well With My Soul. Some of you guys might know this story. This, this was a hymn that was written by a guy back in the days of steamships when you know, there weren't airplanes. That was how you had to get across the Atlantic Ocean. So this guy and his family are traveling to England, and his family winds up going on the ship uh, first, and then Horatio Spafford, who's the author of the hymn, he, he winds up having to take a later ship. Well, while uh, the, the first ship with all of his family on it is, is traveling across the Atlantic Ocean, uh, there's some kind of tragic accident. The ship sinks, and only his wife survives. All of his daughters drown. And his wife makes it to England, sends him a telegram back, and says, saved alone. And with those two words, he immediately understands that he'd heard about the ship and, and he, he recognized, okay, my wife's alive, but the rest of my family has died. And then Horatio Spafford himself, he, he takes another ship, he crosses the Atlantic in order to join his wife in England. And as he is crossing the Atlantic Ocean and as he comes to the place where all of his children had, had passed away, um, he has this moment of encountering God in some way, and he goes on out of that experience to write the hymn, It Is Well With My Soul. And if you know that hymn, the words go like this. It says, when, pe uh, when peace like a river attendeth my way, 
When sorrows like sea billows roll, whatever my lot, you have taught me to say, it is well, it is well with my soul. And that kind of thing, that's, that's like a counter-conditional joy. Like that's a joy that can exist not just, you know, regardless of circumstances, but actually in spite of them. And so what that means is that Christian joy is characterized by permanence and paradox. Because you can have it even when it seems like there, it makes no sense for there to be any reason to have joy at all. So, and, you know, you see that right with what Jesus says. But he actually, he goes on. He says there's a, there's a second thing that characterizes joy. Not just that it's permanent, not just that it's paradoxical. He says here it endures to eternal life. Eternal life. Now, this is not just another way of saying that, like, this lasts forever. Uh, but instead, you know, some people have pointed out that when the Bible says eternal life, what that's not referring to is simply, like, being infinite in quantity, although it is. But actually, it also refers to it being infinite in quality. That's what eternal life really means. Uh, or, you know, uh, as some people have pointed out, you can even translate that phrase, eternal life, as life of the age. And what does that mean? Life of the age uh, is actually a, a reference to the, like, the coming age, when Jesus comes back and when he fully sets up his kingdom, when heaven comes down and merges with earth. So, I mean, think about that. Jesus says that this kind of food that he's offering that it, 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 like it lasts and continues, it wells up unto the life of the age, or, or the, the life that we will know when Jesus returns. And so the implication of that, therefore, is that like, you don't have to wait for heaven to have heaven. You don't have to wait for heaven to have heaven. Because, in a sense, Jesus is saying here that we can taste now at least like in miniature, what we're going to taste then. And that's the kind of joy that Jesus says that we're made for. Like, do you see the, 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 how, how incredible that is? Like this is why the one place where the Bible really defines eternal life for you defines it like this, John 17, 3. For this is eternal life, Jesus says, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you've sent. So Jesus says the essence of eternal life, the essence of heaven, is actually just relationship with Jesus. And that's something that can start not just then, but now. So the point of all of this is that if Jesus is saying that there's such a thing as food that endures to eternal life, what that means is that you are made for that kind of joy. We are made for everlasting joy. A joy that's so deep, that's so profound, that it just pretty much like blows the mind, kind of beggars the senses. And in fact, um, one, of, one of my favorite biblical words that I think kind of captures what that sort of joy is really like is the word shalom. Uh, shalom is usually translated as peace, but shalom is a Hebrew word that means a lot more than just peace, like a lot more than just kind of calm and quiet. Uh, the best way that I've ever heard the word shalom described is that it's a state in which nothing is broken and nothing is missing. Nothing is broken and nothing is missing. And I think that there are moments uh, in this life where you get the tiniest taste of what that's like. You know, it's like when you're sitting around a campfire with your best friends and it's like late at night and like your, your friend next to you had like just has kind of told a story that's so like side-splittingly funny that like everyone can't stop laughing. You know, those kinds of moments. Or, uh, you know, it's like when you're on an airplane, you're above 30,000 feet and the cabin lights are out, everyone around you is asleep and only you 
are the one kind of looking out the window to glimpse like the most gorgeous crimson orange riot sunset you've ever seen. Um, or, you know, it's like moments where like you're by yourself, you're listening to some music of some kind and, and just something in it just speaks to you so deeply in the deepest part of your soul that it brings you to tears. And moments like that. That, I think, is just, you know, those are little glimpses where, where you almost get these little moments of heaven piercing through to earth. Um, or, you know, just personal example, when I think about joy, I think about a moment that happened to me on my vacation about six weeks ago where um, I was telling some of you guys that I was on a road trip and I, I was driving back from Missouri after just having an incredible time there and um, just had like this eight-hour drive ahead of me back to Nashville, Tennessee, and, and just kind of a combination of things, just the time I'd just come from in Missouri and, um, and just like the beauty of, of the, the, the drive that I was doing. I remember there was a moment where, you know, all of a sudden out of nowhere, boom, <laughs> I'm crossing the Mississippi River. And then 30 seconds later, boom, I'm crossing the Ohio River. And I, just, I like my jaw dropped open. It was just so beautiful. And I just thought, this is, it, it was so, so, so beautiful that like, I just felt my soul was like so full it was going to, going to burst. Um, those kinds of moments, the Bible says that we are made to not just taste those, but to run on those, to drink those in. And that is, is why eternity has to be infinite, is because it, um, it, that, that's what we're made for. And so, so uh, this is the kind of joy that we're made for. And the Bible claims here that only that can be found through relationship with Jesus. Only through relationship with Jesus. And this is uh, what Jesus says in verse 27, that this kind of food that endures to eternal life, he says, is the food that the Son of Man will give you. Not just then when we die, but now. So uh, the problem, of course, is this. Uh, The problem is that most of the time we don't actually experience the kind of joy that Jesus says that we're made for. Um, What we do is instead we settle for superficial substitutes. Uh, now, now, look again at verse 27. Notice what Jesus says. He says, Do not work for food that spoils, but for food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. So there's a contrast. He says, There's food that endures to eternal life, but then there's also food that spoils. Now, this is such a great metaphor. I think this is so true of what life is really like for most of the time. Uh, so I, I'm, I'm, I'm a single man. I am unmarried. I live by myself. You know what that means? It means I face the single man's dilemma when it comes to my refrigerator. Uh, if any of you also <laughs> have a similar living arrangement to mine, you might know what I'm talking about, where it's like you go out to the grocery store and you buy food, and you, you know, if you're smart, you're kind of, you've planned your meals, you know, your meal prep a little bit. Uh, but then, like, it doesn't matter. Like, your food eventually spoils because you're a single dude. You can't afford to, you know, like, eat through it all before it goes bad. This happens to me all the time. You know, I was going through my refrigerator the other day, and I'm like, oh, look at this yogurt. You know, open it up, and it's just, you know, it looks like a bomb went off. It's just all covered in that nasty stuff. Uh, so this happens to me a lot. My refrigerator is an embarrassing place. Um, don't worry. I, I'll still have you over, though. I, I'm not ashamed to share with you, like, all my dirty laundry and the messy stuff in my life. But, yeah, no, single, single guy's dilemma. Live by myself. My food spoils easily. Uh, but the thing is, like, your food doesn't spoil right away. It takes a couple weeks. That's why it's so embarrassing when you open up the yogurt and it's like, oh, boy, I've let this sit for that long. And so th- th- this is exactly how I think a lot of pleasures in life really work. Uh, you know, they don't necessarily spoil right away. You kind of pursue something, you know, maybe it's like a a relationship with like a person that you really are into and maybe they're really into you. But then, you know, like you discover, hey, like this person is great and 
they are a sinner saved by grace, <laughs> just like me. And all the stuff begins to come out in the relationship, you know, like, oh, when they do this, it just really irritates me. And, oh, I wish they weren't this way. And, oh, I blah, blah, blah. And you know what? They're thinking the exact same thing about you the whole time. <laughs> or, okay, you go out and buy something. This happened to me. This happens to me all the time. I love buying books. I don't always read them, but I love buying them. And I get so excited when a new book comes in the mail. And it's like, oh, I got a book. In fact, I got one in the mail today. And then I, you know, I just, I kind of look at it. And I just, I want to hold it. I want to touch it. It's just so shiny. But then, you know, it just winds up sitting on my shelf. And I walk past it, you know, and I just, it doesn't hold the allure of like the new book feeling, you know. Uh, you probably, you know, I'm sure none of you guys are as nerdy as me. It probably is not books, but maybe it's something else. You know, it's like a new car or something, whatever. Or, you know, you start something. Like you start a new job, and at first it's just great because it feels new and novel. But then time goes on, and then you're just like, ah, oh, the grind. This is so boring. I want to find another job. This is awful. This is how pleasures work. Like they start out pretty good, but then they spoil. And Jesus says the same thing. He says, look. Uh, just like food spoils, so do earthly pleasures. Uh, and, and the problem, of course, is that we spend most of our life trying to pursue things that spoil. Um, and, and, and the reason that's so deadly is that that actually distracts from what our ultimate purpose is, which is to know true everlasting joy. Um, I once heard uh, or read in a book, actually, imagine that. I read this in a book. Uh, it, it's a story about a, a, a college uh, building that had like this mouse infestation. So they hire a pest control guy and the pest control guy comes in to deal with the mice. And they ask him, well, what are you doing to deal with the mice? And he says, well, I've got this, 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 uh, it's this stuff. It's this, this chemically made stuff. And, and it tastes like the normal food the rats like to eat, but it actually has no nutritional value to it. And so the rats are like gorging themselves on this fake food and they're not even realizing that they're dying because it doesn't nutritional value. They just, they, they eat and eat and eat themselves to death. That's so much of what we want to do with earthly pleasures is that we go after them thinking they're going to satisfy when really it's just fake food. There's the fake food of like another person. There's the fake food of like trying to find your identity in like your job. There's the fake food of worshiping politics and thinking if this person just gets elected, then for four years, everything's going to be going great until the next guy comes in. You know, there's all these different kinds of fake food out there. And of course, the classic explanation of what all this really amounts to comes from C.S. Lewis. And here's what he says. Uh, He says that we are half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered to us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by an offer of a holiday at sea. We are far too easily pleased. Yeah. Now, here's the thing. Most of the time we don't think about it like this. Um, What we tend to do in our culture today, and actually in a lot of Christian culture today, uh, we're constantly turning to other things other than Jesus to satisfy us, and we tend to adopt a whole bunch of strategies to persuade us that we're actually more satisfied than we really are. Um, I've got this book here. This is a book by Tim Keller, who's my spirit animal, by the way. And uh, he gives you a couple of uh, different ideas of kind of what those strategies are. So let me just, I'm going to share a couple of them with you. Uh, number one, you might call the naivety strategy. 
So uh, this is what happens when you're young, okay? So uh, I know no one here is young because we're young adults, but not young. We're just, you know, young adults. But when you're young, you look out at life and you think, oh, man, like the world's my oyster. I'm going to set my sights on something. And, and, and that something, I'm going to go after it, you know. It's going to make me satisfied. Maybe it's money. Maybe it's getting married. You know, I really want to get married. Or maybe it's becoming a certain kind of person. Maybe it's becoming a social media influencer, you know. Uh, like Ollie back there is a model. He does some modeling. He's going to be a social media influencer someday, I bet you. Uh, I see you, Ollie. <laughs> yeah, but, but of course, okay, like the problem is like uh, you're, you're young. You haven't achieved your goals yet, but you're sure that they're out there. And that with a bunch of hard work, you're eventually going to get it. But the reason this is naive, number one, is that hardly anyone ever really achieves their dreams. Uh, you, you, we only hear about the celebrities that do, but like that's the minority. No, most people don't achieve their dreams. And then number two, those who do actually achieve their dreams eventually say it's not worth it. So Jim Carrey, famous actor, guy who did achieve a pretty big dream. Uh, Jim Carrey actually says this. He says, I think everybody should get rich and famous and do everything they ever dreamed of so they can see that it's not the answer. So there's a guy who's been there and he says, look, this doesn't do anything for me. So that's number one, the naivety strategy. Number two, the anxiety strategy. So then what happens is you get older and then life begins to hit and then you start adulting. (laughs) It's like, life is hard. (laughs) Like I have to pay the bills, I have to get a job, I have to make my way through school, I've got to figure all this stuff out. And then you begin to worry like time is getting on here and I'm like, I'm not married yet. I'm not like where I want to be. <laughs> I'm not achieving my dreams. You begin to worry like maybe I'm not actually going to find the satisfaction that I wanted. And that leads to anxiety. Now anxiety always comes from control. Wanting to control your life and not letting God control your life. So in this posture, because you're the one trying to control what your life should look like, it's easy to fall into uh, maybe self-doubt you say, well, maybe I went wrong somewhere, and that's why I, I, I'm not satisfied. Or, or maybe it's self-hatred. that, Like, I know I went wrong somewhere, and that's why I'm not satisfied. Or, you know, it could just be simple discouragement. Because you know that your life is so far from where you think it ought to be. So the naivety strategy, the anxiety strategy. Well, then, uh, there's the cynicism strategy. There's a certain point that you might hit where you've experienced enough of life's disappointments that you finally become persuaded that satisfaction isn't actually out there at all. But at least you know that, you know. At least you're one of the enlightened ones. (laughs) Unlike all those kind of naive, starry-eyed, millennial dreamers out there who don't understand how life really works. And of course, this strategy is problematic too, because all that does is it turns you into a hardened, smug, and self-righteous person who looks down on all those other nights. That's not a good strategy. And then last and finally, um, number four, there's what you might call the settling strategy. This is kind of the point where finally, your cynicism just kind of drives you to settle for just sort of an average life. Just kind of scrape together what you can get and just say, well, I'm just going to take what I get and be happy with it. Uh, And a lot of times in our culture, what that looks like is kind of saying, well, what I'm going to settle for is being kind of a good person. Uh, I'm going to be like all altruistic and I'm not going to live for my satisfaction, but I'm going to actually live for other people's satisfaction. And that's how I'm going to find meaning in my life. Um, But the problem with that is that you're actually not being altruistic. You're actually just being selfish because you're using other people to feel good about yourself. 
And so, you know, that's not really a kind of satisfaction that you can settle for. And on top of that, you're, you're actually dehumanizing yourself when you settle. Because the only way that you can settle is when you kill off the dreamer inside of you. You know, the, the kind of the, the younger inner child, you know, the young boy or young girl that actually one time really did believe that there was real joy out there. Do you really want to do that to yourself? So all of these strategies, you know, the naivety strategy, the anxiety strategy, the cynicism strategy, the settling strategy, all of these are ways that we cope with fake food. <laughs> the way that we settle for things that are just superficial substitutes for the kind of joy that Jesus really wants us to have. And this takes us to our I am statement. Uh, verse 35. Uh, Jesus, after saying some other stuff, which we're not going to look at tonight, uh, Jesus declared, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will never go hungry, and he who believes in me will never be thirsty. And what Jesus is claiming here is that if you've lived your whole life on a diet of fake food, I'm here to offer you something that really, truly satisfies the very depths of your soul. Now, a lot of you probably know that. (laughs) At least you know it intellectually, uh, because maybe some of you uh, have grown up going to church You've heard a lot of people say, oh, Jesus, you know, just find your joy in Jesus or those kind of silly, trite church things that we say. But but look, even if you know that, that's a whole lot different than actually experiencing it. And so uh, here's what I want to ask tonight. Like, how do you actually do that? You know, how do you actually find deep joy in Jesus? What does that what does that mean? Well, just as we kind of conclude here, I just want I want to just point out. Uh, that Jesus sort of helps give you the answer in this passage. So you notice that uh, at first they, they're, finding, they're trying to find Jesus because uh, he fed them food. And, and so basically they think of Jesus as just a big vending machine. They're, oh, hey, Jesus, we're hungry. Give us some food. Give us some bread. And, and so they're approaching Jesus uh, not in order to get Jesus, but they're actually using Jesus to get things. See that difference there. And, and Jesus actually calls them out on it. He, he says, hey, like, you know, you're going to set yourself up for failure here. Don't just look for me because I gave you food, but like look for, look, look for me because I actually want to offer you something deeper. And what that means is that there are two different ways that you can approach God. Uh, one way is that you can use God to get things. Those things might be God's blessings. Uh, those things might be kind of like positive self-esteem because I'm such a good religious person I do all the religious things, and I read my Bible, and so I'm actually using God as just a way to feel good about myself. Uh, But all those things are are the opposite of the other approach, which is actually to use things to get God. Do you see the difference there? You can either use God to get things, or you can use things to get God. The problem with using God to get things is exactly what we've been talking about. All of those things that you might be using God to get are going to burn you out. They're all just various versions of fake food. If you're putting all of your eggs in the basket of trying to be like this, you know, perfectly put together person, well, eventually there's going to be cracks in your facade and your whole life is going to fall apart. If you're trying to use God just to be popular, well, then if someone comes along who doesn't like you and that's going to shatter your popularity bubble, your life's going to fall apart. If you're using God just to find a spouse, you know, and and just saying, God, you know, why won't you give me a spouse? Or God, why won't you give me the job I want? Well, then... (laughs) You're not guaranteed those things. <laughs> you might have the best job in the world. You might lose it. You know, if you lose that thing, your whole life's going to fall apart. Anytime you use God to get things, you're going to be disappointed. Jesus says, flip it around. 
Use things to get God. Make me your treasure. That's the first thing, is you've got to know that Jesus is your treasure. But then he actually goes on and says something else. This is something that isn't really, uh, wasn't in what we read tonight, but if you go to verse 57 here, let me just read this really quick. 57, uh, just as the living Father sent me and I live because of the Father, so the one who feeds on me will live because of me. Um, you can't just know intellectually that Jesus is your treasure. You have to actually feed on him. You know, if you, if you uh, are a Christian here tonight, and you're like, man, why am I so just like not delighting in Jesus? Like, why is he just not my treasure? Um, you know, have you ever just like wasted time with God? <laughs> Think about that. Just like kind of like no agenda. You're not trying to get anything from God. You just want to like waste time with him. You just want to spend time with him. And that might look different for a lot of different people because we're different people. But, uh, you know, I know some people who the way that they do that is they just go out in nature <laughs> where it's pretty easy to just kind of have their mind elevated to thoughts of, of God, the creator who made all of this. And that's just how they delight in Jesus' presence. Or, you know, for me, um, I love just taking a little cup of tea or a cup of coffee. And I'll just, there's this little spot on the property where I live, and I'll just walk up and down this little kind of driveway. And, you know, not a lot of agenda. I'll just be kind of thinking about, like, just things that I'm thankful to God for. Uh, sometimes I'll be thinking about um, just... Things that he's been doing in my life. And, and I'm not like trying to grab him by the scruff of the neck and say, God, like, you know, give me this, give me that. Like, we can do that. Like, God actually wants us to make requests to him, but it's just kind of no agenda, just sort of wasting time in the presence of God. Um, you know, if you're in a relationship, maybe some of you are, and you ever spend time with your significant other, <laughs> what do you think is going to happen to that relationship? It's going to die. And I think one of the reasons why we don't always feel the kind of satisfaction in Jesus that, that we want is that we're just like thinking that, well, if I just kind of uh, do all the religious things, then, then, then doesn't, that, doesn't that count? Well, maybe, but like, what would it look like to actually change the way that you spend time with God? What would it look like to actually change um, just the way that you relate to him, not just as a bunch of duties, but just because I want to just spend some time wasting time in God's presence? I think that's what it means to feed on Jesus. There's a lot more that I could say here. We're out of time. Uh, but what I'd like to do is uh, just pray for us. We're going to move into a time of small groups where we're going to have the chance to look at this a little bit more. And uh, leaders, I'll send out questions in just a second here as soon as we're finished. But um, yeah, just main takeaways for tonight. Um, we're made for everlasting joy. Don't settle for superficial substitutes. And think about like what would it actually look like um, to, to just relate to Jesus in a way where he's not just like a, a vending machine that you're using to get other stuff, but you're actually using other stuff because you want to get him. Cool? Okay, I'm going to pray. Lord, thank you for this time. Uh, I just pray that you uh, would use this word. And God, I pray that uh, you would just make us people who love wasting time with you, just enjoying uh, being with you. Just show us what that looks like. I uh, pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.